Greetings, greetings, fellow Whogazers, and welcome to a special episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. At the time of recording, it is September 23rd, 2021, and it is Doctor Who Day across the internet and across the world. This is Doctor Who's 58th anniversary, and we're going to observe today by continuing on with a modified version of my ongoing Twitter Doctor Who pilgrimage. So by way of background, last October 26th, 2020, at the height of the pandemic lockdowns, I started binge-watching the classic series, two episodes a night, starting with An Unearthly Child and The Cave of Skulls, the very first two episodes. I continued watching two episodes a night, and I just finished with Survival Part 3 a little less than a week ago. What I'm going to do tonight is, by way of celebration of the 58th anniversary, I'm going to pick two random episodes from the internet, and I'm going to provide audio commentaries for those two random episodes right here. And I do this for a very specific reason. Number one, November 23rd is not just Doctor Who's anniversary, but it's also mine. The very first time that I watched the show on Channel 21, my PBS station growing up in New York, it was November 23rd, 1984. My school friends had been trying to persuade me to watch the show, so I finally tuned in, and I watched about 90 seconds of Time Flight Part 1. Time Flight made the following impression on me. None whatsoever. I watched about 90 seconds, I didn't understand it, and I changed the channel. About a week later, I tried again, and that was Arc of Infinity Part 2, and with a couple of hiccups along the way, I pretty much have never stopped watching the show since then. So the second reason why I'm going to be picking two random episodes tonight is to test a theory. If you've heard the trailer for this podcast, this podcast exists primarily because of two other podcasts that I follow and admire. The Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, which follows the novelizations in story order, beginning with An Unearthly Child. They're up to the late Tom Baker era now. And also the History of Literature podcast, which is a storytelling look at the great authors and the great books. Now, there's a third podcast which has directly inspired this one, and it's a source that's not going to be familiar. I would wager to a lot of Doctor Who fans, particularly across the pond. But I follow a podcast called This Week in Baseball History, and every week they cover a noteworthy or historic event in baseball that occurred on this week however many years ago. Over the summer, earlier in 2021, one of the two podcast hosts did a solo episode where he realized that 99% of the games ever played in baseball are unimportant and not very historical. This is a sport where every team plays 154 or 162 games a year, and there have been between 16 and 30 teams in Major League Baseball going back for well over 100 years now. That's a lot of games, and most of them, in the event, just don't matter. Now, when we talk about Doctor Who, we like to divide it up into lists. We talk about the great episodes, uh, the Pyramids of Mars, the Infernos, the Remembrance of the Daleks, the Blinks, the Doctor Who Fluxes. And we also talk about the all-time turkeys, the Twin Dilemmas. Uh, In a previous incarnation, the Gunfighters was believed to be a turkey, although for my money, it's one of the all-time greats. Uh, Fear Her usually turns up on bottom lists. What we don't often talk about are the ordinary workaday Doctor Who episodes, the Doctor Who episodes in the middle of the pack, neither fantastic nor horrible. If you just grab a random episode off your shelf, it's likely going to be 
just a decent or a fair to middling or maybe a mediocre story. So what I'm going to do for this 58th anniversary special is I'm going to pick two episodes at random, and I'm not going to do a scene-by-scene commentary. What I'm going to do is a conceptual commentary. We'll talk about what are the elements of this episode and how it ties in to the era when that particular episode was made and broadcast. And we'll talk about how we can discover the larger history of Doctor Who just by examining random episodes. I don't yet know what I'm going to watch. It may be an all-time gem. It may be an all-time turkey. But my suspicion is it's just going to be an ordinary episode that I might not, on a typical day, have any urge to watch. So we're going to go to episodegenerator.com slash doctor hyphen who hyphen old, and we're going to pick one random episode. And the first choice is Image of the Fendal Part 1. Now, I gotta tell you, this is not one of my favorites. I know this is a pretty well-regarded story in some quarters. It always left me cold, and when I watched it as part of my pilgrimage, this probably would have come up uh, earlier in the summer of 2021, I just thought it wasn't that well made. I thought there were some conceptual problems with it. Uh, There were some areas where the script could have used some revisions for clarity. And it happened to fall in the middle of season 15, which was Graham Williams' first season as producer, and there were some pretty rocky moments there uh, before he reached his heights of season 16 and particularly season 17. Now I'm just saying all this from memory. I have not seen the episode since uh, the summer, and I've watched many, many, many episodes after it, including every classic series episode ever made after Image of the Fendal Part 1, and of course all of the uh, currently four episodes in progress Doctor Who Flux season. So, after the jump, I will start watching Image of the Fendal Part 1, and we'll see what we can learn about the history of Doctor Who on its 58th birthday, just by examining this one random episode. And here we go. This is probably the, at least for Americans, certainly probably the most famous of the Doctor Who opening title sequences. Most of us started watching the show on PBS in the United States with their Tom Baker package. They had, I think, the first four seasons of Via Time Life Television, and later on they got the entire series. I had started watching uh, with Time Flight, of course, but uh, this particular opening credit sequence with Tom Baker's face is probably the most famous one of them all. Now we open, of course, uh, with the skull. If memory serves me right, there was a lot of uh, editing done to this story in post-production. It should have opened with the image of the hiker in the woods, and if memory serves me right, that's where Terrence Dix's novelization begins. Of the two random strangers that were introduced to in the very first scene, the woman standing over the skull is Wanda Ventham. She is better known, of course, today as uh, the mother of Sherlock Holmes, Benedict Cumberbatch, but this is her second of three appearances in Doctor Who. She had been in The Faceless Ones as an airport secretary, and then later on she showed up in Time on the Ronnie, one of the few bright spots in the story. 
and uh, the gentleman in the lab coat who's entered the room, I forget the name of the actor off the top of my head, oh, to be 20 years younger when I still had the program guide memorized, but he had also been in uh, Day of the Daleks several years earlier. Uh, the film sequence of the hiker walking through the woods is profoundly creepy, at least in the Terence Dix novelization, where he quotes from the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, the, the bit about like one who on a lonesome road that does walk in fear and dread. And that's what this scene is supposed to represent. You have a hiker walking through the woods and he's being stalked by something. We're not going to see what that something is, probably until the end of episode two, if not later. But in a few moments, something terrible is going to happen to him. And this is Doctor Who on film at night with fog and mist, and it's very atmospheric. This is probably one of the more iconic moments from Image of the Fendal. You'll notice, though, of course, that we're now two and a half minutes into the story, and we have not seen the Doctor or the TARDIS yet. What we do have on the right is the third actor so far in less than three minutes who's been on Doctor Who before. That's Dennis Lill. And he goes through the first three parts of this story in an oddly accented haze. He would come back at the end of the Peter Davison era for The Awakening, where he was terrific as Sir George Hutchinson. In this story, he's a bit uh, underwritten and perhaps overplayed with the accent. I'm still not quite sure what that accent is supposed to be. What makes this Chris Boucher script interesting is you have the juxtaposition of the horror and the occult with what for the time, the mid to late 1970s, would have been high-tech science. So you have what would have been very expensive computer equipment um, against the idea of the skull and the strange organic horror that thrives on the occult, like the skull which right now is coming to life. Something that always made me curious about this story, and even after having been watching it on and off for 35 years and having read the novelization probably a half dozen times, why does the skull latch on to Thea? Is it just because she happens to be the first person in the room when the skull is activated by the time scanner? Or is it because the story implies that there are genetic links between the original Fendal on Earth and all the various humans who have been gathered in uh, Fetch Priory here. Uh, Fendelman, of course, uh, his name is Fendelman, obviously, plays into the episode title. And he, of course, has that incredibly over-the-top line in Part 3 about how, and I promise you I'm not going to do the accent, how mankind has been used. So was Thea born uh, specifically to become the Fendel core? Or, again, was he just the unlucky person who was in the room and the skull latched onto her, and had it been Colby in the room, would Colby be the person who turned it to the Fendel core? That's a nice image, actually. Uh, that's uh, division mixing. It would have been difficult to do, um, of the skull cross-fading into Thea's face and back. Doctor Who gets a lot of flack for its special effects over the years, but that's actually a pretty uh, inventive and nice shot. Now we have the hiker, who is being chased through the woods. He is essentially a non-speaking part, and I don't recall him being anybody particularly noteworthy in the history of Doctor Who guest actors. But we are now more than five minutes into the episode, and the Doctor and Leela and K-9 and the TARDIS haven't even shown up yet. 
that you have to wonder, I haven't thought about this before, where does Image of the Fendal fall in terms of uh, Doctor Who episodes that take the longest to have us meet the Doctor and companions in part one? The space Pirates, uh, obviously, I think they don't show up until minute 17, and in Mission to the Unknown, they never show up at all. But we're now nearly six minutes into the story, and we just haven't seen them yet. The writer of this piece was Chris Boucher. This ended up being his final script for Doctor Who. One season earlier, in season 14, he had written The Face of Evil, which introduced Leela, and then he was invited to write the, the very next story, The Robots of Death. The hiker is dying a pretty horrific death here, and Thea is just about to faint because of the skull. You know, this is actually well done, and I find myself enjoying this more now than I did over the summer as part of my rewatch. When you watch this in sequence, almost every episode in seasons 12, 13, and 14, excluding Robot, oh, here we go, we're finally inside the TARDIS at more than six and a half minutes in. But nearly every episode in seasons 12, 13, and 14, starting with the Ark in Space, which is the first... Uh, aired Philip Hinchcliffe story. I think half of those stories were in the top 25 in the year 2014 Doctor Who survey. And after you finish that incredibly well-made run of stories from Ark in Space through Talons of Wing Chiang, the horror of Fang Rock is a highlight, but then you're slammed with the invisible enemy and this story back to back. In sequence, they don't really hold up, but just watching this randomly, I'm actually, again, enjoying it more than I recall when I was watching it in sequence. So this is Leela, once again back in the hands of the writer who created her, Chris Boucher. We have Canine in this scene as well. Canine had just been introduced in the previous story, The Invisible Enemy. And I believe he was a late shoehorn into the script, so he doesn't feature in the story at all. He's just essentially a non-working prop inside the, the TARDIS scenes in parts one and four, and I don't think John Leeson even gets to say a word. What I do remember that's interesting about this is that starting the story before with The Invisible Enemy, Tom Baker suddenly spends probably about 40% of his time fondling uh, the TARDIS prop, and this story is, or I should say the TARDIS console prop, and this story is no exception. It's also odd seeing him without his scarf and without his hat. He's just in a, a waistcoat or waistcoat and a brown jacket, which is uh, not his usual. This, I believe, was Leela's secondary costume. It's not the same costume that she had worn in her debut season, season 14. And if you go back and watch the uh, DVD info text, which I deliberately did not put on for my little commentary here, uh, you can see a little more information as to why she, she changed her outfit. Then there is Tom Baker, of course, uh, fondling the console, which was going to become his character's defining trait uh, for the entire Graham Williams era, seasons 15 through 17. The center console there is not having an easy time of rising and falling. Something I wish the story had done more of was spend a little more time exploring the guest characters. We have this promising scene in the kitchen where the characters are gathered around, reading the paper, and having breakfast. 
But the story really never lets us into the characters' internal lives. We never really find out who Theo was before she gets infected by the Fendal. We learn a little bit about Professor Fendelman, but he's really a tertiary part at best. Terence Dix, I think, tries to fill in a little more of his backstory in the novelization. And he does the same for Max uh, Stahl, sitting at the far end uh, of the table. When Boucher came back to write for the book line in uh, the 1990s and 2000s, he ended up writing four Tom Baker, Dr. and Leland novels. The first of those, uh, Last Man Running, was kind of, sort of like his first story, Face of Evil. The second of those, Corpse Marker, was a direct sequel to Robots of Death. Uh, the third book, the name of which escapes me at the moment because I'm doing this commentary without the benefit of Wikipedia, was kind of, sort of, a high-tech slash occult story, and it was a bit like the image of the Fendal. The fourth book I actually read for the first time this past summer, as the book's part of my pilgrimage. My Twitter handle, after all, is Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, and I try to talk about the books whenever I can, even when I'm just doing a tweet-through of the television series itself. So the fourth book was called Match of the Day, and it was not based on, or it wasn't similar to any of Boucher's TV scripts. I didn't find it particularly thrilling. I found it a bit dull and plotting, but I'm not the biggest fan of Boucher's work on the series. Again, there's a lot of promising elements here, but again, we just don't learn enough about the secondary and tertiary characters to really care about them. And the novelization is barely 100 pages long. And Terrence is very good at adding value in parentheticals and adding a very powerful, you know, one or two sentence aside to tell us who these characters are. But uh, Colby's leather jacket is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the scene in lieu of the actor himself. We're now roughly at the halfway point of the episode, and we've had some really well-directed sequences. We've had the skull uh, taking over Thea. We've had the hiker. This scene, the breakfast scene, could have been used to get us a little more emotionally invested in the characters. What's happening here is we get a sense that uh, Fendelman is very amoral. Colby has discovered the body of the hiker, and Fendelman is telling him to cover it up so as not to involve the authorities. And Colby, unfortunately, is playing along. Thea is not really having it. Uh, she does not want to go along with the cover-up, but of course... She's not going to be Thea very much longer, so her a bit of conscience here, I guess, lends into the tragic element of what's going to happen to her character, but we never really learn enough about her to uh, make the tragedy all that compelling, at least in this one particular viewer's opinion. So what I'll talk about instead, in lieu of the plot and the story, is I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Tom Baker. It is interesting that my random number generator just happened to pick a Tom Baker story. Statistically, that's no surprise. Tom Baker played the Doctor for seven years. He is far and away the longest uh, actor to play the Doctor in, in terms of uh, serials. He did, what was it, like 180 individual episodes across 40 or 41 serials over seven years. Nobody else ever matched that. We are now in the early or the early middle of season 15. Baker, during the 
Hinchcliffe years was a mercurial figure. You never knew when he was going to be in a comic mood or in an angry and condescending or bitter mood. A very good example of that is the transition of his character from Robot, which was made at the end of season 11 with a Santaran experiment where he you know, doesn't have much to do and the actor is injured halfway through the story. And then Ark in Space, which is his first four-part serial under Philip Hinchcliffe, where his character is extraordinarily moody and given to bursts of poetry and anger at the same time. Starting around about now, uh, in season 15, we're going to see Tom Baker casting a lot of that aside. And with Graham Williams not being as... Uh, perhaps strong or domineering a producer as Hinchcliffe, Baker's acting certainly gets a lot more comic, and he starts treating the script as a piece of jazz to improvise and riff off of, rather than as something to follow note for note. In this story, he's, again, more in line with the Hinchcliffe portrayal, we have not yet not we have not yet gotten to the point in Nightmare of Eden where he's going to be going off script and uh, doing comedic acting aimed at the less discriminating eight year old. He does get some serious moments in the story, although I'd argue the script doesn't really give him as many interesting things to do as it did in Bowser's two previous Tom Baker stories, uh, Face and Robots. There's a little bit of a conspiracy here between Stahl and Fendelman. We never quite learn why Fendelman takes Stahl, who's going to be a bad guy, into his confidence, where he leaves Colby and Thea in the dark. And there's Tom Baker sleeping on location under his hat. That certainly seems like it was an ad-lib by the actor on location, rather than a choice that was in the script. And now Leela is holding a knife on this poor villager, who we're later going to find out is actually uh, not just a villager, but also a villain, and is part of the coven that is helping to bring the Fendal back to life. That's another area of the script that I wasn't crazy about, because this guy goes from, you know, this random uh, schlubby villager that Leela is holding a knife to, to becoming a bad guy. It arguably could have been two separate characters. Uh, the transition doesn't really sell me but then again i'm not english and i don't live in one of these rural villages where uh, the occult is the norm so perhaps this is a photorealistic of a particular type of individual but again it's just not the kind of thing that speaks to my life experience or it makes me think oh i identify with this character i am however madly in love with the way that louise jameson plays leela I was watching Dimensions in Time last night, and if you're following me along on Twitter, which may well be how you found this podcast, I was talking about how Louise Jameson, for her one scene in Dimensions in Time, which was made you know, 15 years after she left the series, effortlessly finds the way that she played Leela before, with a mixture of childlike innocence and native intelligence and instinct. Everything Louise Jameson does with these scripts makes you believe that she inhabits the character. It's a pretty demanding role for a companion to play because she's playing someone completely alien and quite a contrast from Sarah Jane Smith, the street smart journalist who had been the previous long-running companion. It takes a lot of 
I think, energy and courage to do uh, what Louise Jameson does as Leela. And she really sells it. She's really never anything less than extraordinarily watchable. Uh, now, this woman is the classic, uh, classic, the classic, I should say, type of classic Doctor Who episodes. She is uh, the homespun type who speaks in the regional accent, and she is also a practitioner of the occult, and she has a lot of wisdom. She will end up being uh, the Doctor's ally later in the story. She also is not only a witch, but she is the cook for the Priory. And here she is uh, casting dark aspersions on the characters who are forcing her out of her own kitchen. It's a pretty funny performance, and if I were better at accents, I would probably spend most of the next uh, six or seven minutes of the story just trying to imitate her. But fortunately for you, that is not my skill set. I can tell you from a storytelling point of view, the very first time that I saw Image of the Fendal probably would have been the spring of 1985. So I had discovered Doctor Who on PBS, like I said, November 23rd, 1984, and that would have been the night they aired part one of Time Flight. Um, they reached the end of the Peter Davison era at the end of January 1985. And they did not yet have the rights to Colin Baker's uh, first episode, Twin Dilemma, or his first season, starting with his first season proper, I should say, starting with Attack of the Cybermen. So instead of showing Twin Dilemma, that package would not come to US PBA stations until late 1985, if memory serves me right. They cycled back around to Robot. So Caves of Androzani 4 had aired on a Friday night at the end of January. Robot Part 1 would have aired the following Monday, which, if you look at a calendar, was probably the first Monday in February 1985. Uh, it was very important to my parents that in the middle of this episode, Robot Part 1, at about 7.15, we all leave the house and we go to the library. I can't remember why. So I popped a tape into the VCR and I taped the last 10 or 11 minutes of Robot Part 1. Uh, what happened then is I woke up the next morning with a pretty bad case of the flu and I had a really high fever and I ended up missing that school that day as well as the next two days. I was 11 years old, I was in the sixth grade, which at the time was the last year of elementary school. And that Tuesday, uh, it was the middle of the day, it was before uh, part two of Robot aired, I watched the last 10 or 11 minutes of Robot over and over again, watched it, rewound it, watched it, rewound it. I was lying on the floor. I had a, I got 102 fever. I was not feeling well at all. But just watching Robot over and over again, I just fell in love with it. And I could probably recite every line of dialogue from those last 10 minutes of Robot. The Robot then airs over the rest of the week, and on Friday, part one of the Ark in Space airs. Now, at this point, I was just completely addicted to the show, and I was taping the episodes most nights, and I watched them again uh, on Saturday. So I watched Ark in Space part one several times that weekend, and the contrast was clearly visible to me, the way that Tom Baker changed his performance in between Robot and Ark in Space. And I quickly just tried to emulate Tom Baker's character in all things with the holding things in his pockets and you never knew what he was going to pull out of there and his uh, habit of cracking quips. Uh, you know, when you're 11 years old and you're in school and conformity is the norm, an 11-year-old going around acting like Tom Baker in America is just not going to make himself a lot of friends. But 
I was tremendously enamored of Tom Baker. And if it was the Peter Davison era that got me to start watching the show, it was the fact that Tom Baker was next that really cemented my fandom. If they had just shown the, the Colin Baker stories right after that instead of Tom Baker, uh, who knows if I'd become the level of fan that I am. Tom Baker entered my life at exactly the right time. So this story probably would have aired much later in the spring uh, or perhaps uh, the very early summer. It probably would have been May or June 1985. I remember missing part one, and I remember missing part four. I can't remember now why. It was 36 years later, but I didn't get to watch every episode, and I didn't always get to tape the episodes that I wasn't home for. So I came to know Ark in Space better from the novelization. I Probably was a while before I saw the whole thing, all four episodes in, in sequence. And we're back to Wanda Ventham here. And she has discovered the time scanner. And she's going to activate it. And it's going to activate the skull. I'm not quite sure what length the time scanner has to the skull. Maybe that's explained in the novelization or elsewhere in the episode that I'm talking over. Again, I like the idea that they're juxtaposing the technology with the occult, but a lot of the things in the story happen for reasons that I can't understand, and it just seem it does seem a little disjointed to me. We're coming up on the cliffhanger now, and you have to love the way Tom Baker does cliffhanger acting. Cliffhanger acting is obviously not the way that we go through our lives. I mean, there may be moments in our lives that would be cliffhangers if we were in serials, but we don't always know they're coming. Whereas on Doctor Who, the acting always ramps itself up at the cliffhanger, even if the characters shouldn't be aware that this is actually going to be a cliffhanger moment. So they're always a little more heightened and a little more dramatic, and perhaps they're bathed in sweat. So you always know when a cliffhanger is coming, just from the way Tom Baker ramps up his performance. And the director here is doing a lot of intercutting. That we have Thea once again merging with the skull, and there's that same effect of the skull crossfading into Thea. It's actually quite good. Some of the directors that came in for the Graham Williams era weren't great, but this is a pretty visual story. Uh, Tom Baker is now being stalked by the Fendaline, which we have not seen yet. And Leela is trying to break into a cottage, and somebody's firing a gun at her. And here now the film camera is closing in on Tom Baker, and there goes the sting, and there go the end credits. So I talked a bit about cliffhanger acting, and now of course we have a moment where Tom Baker is not actually cliffhanger acting. He's just standing still in a field on film while the camera pushes into his face. But my point stands. Most Tom Baker cliffhanger um, are tremendously enjoyable because of the way that he ramps his acting performance up. He's watchable in everything, but cliffhangers are often his best moments. The image of the Fendal Part 1 doesn't really play into that, so I apologize, but, but put on any other random Tom Baker story and you'll certainly see what I mean. Uh, the members of the uh, production team, Robert Holmes, one of his last stories as a script editor, he probably was one of the best there ever was. Graham Williams as producer, who got better as he went along. And George Spenton Foster, not a prolific director in the Doctor Who world, but I think he does some some really, really good work in this story. So that is Image of the Fendal Part 1. So what we'll do now is take a look and see where we are at. Let's go back to our random episode generator. And let's see what else you have for me this time. I'm going to press the Generate Next button episode. 
I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to get an image of the Fendall Part 2. That would be an incredibly astronomically impossible coincidence. And the episode is, ooh, Season 8, Episode 20, Colony in Space, Episode 6. I'll uh, leave you with a quick break, and then we'll come back and watch Colony in Space, Episode 6. So I cheated a little bit, and I looked this story up on the Doctor Who Year 2014 Doctor Who Magazine poll. This story, Colony in Space, clocked in at 199 out of 241. So that makes it basically uh, the worst, one of the worst John Pertwee stories, one of the worst Doctor Who stories of all time. The Discontinuity Guide, which came out, uh, the work of three authors in the mid-1990s, uh, set the stage for fandom-received wisdom for the next generation. And this is one of the stories for which the authors reserved their harshest invective. I don't see it. Uh, for me, uh, this is not a top 10 or a top 20, but it's just a really good story. I'll tell you how I encountered the John Pertwee era. As I said before the jump, when we were still on Image of the Fendal, I came to Doctor Who uh, in the middle of the Peter Davison era, but my fandom, my addiction to the show, was certainly cemented by the Tom Baker years. In late 1985, as Doctor Who was really taking off in the U.S., and that was evidenced in bookstores, you could walk into any bookstore and there would be two or three shelves full of novelizations, which is... The main thrust of uh, this podcast, but the other stories, the older stories, started coming to PBS. Being on Long Island, we had a 37-channel uh, cable setup through Cablevision, which was then our local cable TV vendor, and I probably had access to about six or seven different PBS stations, most of which were showing Doctor Who. In the Northeast U.S., you had channel 13 which didn't show doctor who you had channel 21 which did you had access to wgbh in boston channel 38 you had access to wnyc channel 31 i think which was then the new york city pbs station you had new jersey network and then you had channel 44 uh, wvia out of scranton wilkesbury pennsylvania new jersey network started getting the tom baker era uh, check that. They started getting the John Pertwee era in late 1985. The problem is they were showing the stories in movie format, and they were showing them pretty late in the evening on Saturdays at about 11 o'clock. It just wasn't always possible for me to watch the stories. We only had one VCR, and it was an old-fashioned VCR that could only record the channel that was on. And my parents would get dibs if my father or mother wanted to tape something, say, off PBS or some other station. Plus, a lot of these stories went on for hours past my bedtime. If you're talking about Silurians, I fell asleep in the middle of what would have been episode two in the movie format. And Ambassadors of Death was years before I got to see that all the way through. Colony in Space, I don't recall if I got to see when it had its original New Jersey network airing. And that would have been at some point in later 1985. 
uh, my station, Channel 21, then got, in late 1985, the existing Hartnell and Troughton packages and Colin Baker's first season. I'll never forget that the first time they showed An Unearthly Child, and at this point uh, it would have been shown in movie format on Saturday night, all four episodes at once, uh, it was, of course, Rosh Hashanah, so we were in shul for the, most of the evening praying for the new year, and I got home in the middle of part four, so the very first bit I saw of An Unearthly Child would have been the very last ten minutes. So, Channel 21, I don't remember when they first started showing the Pertwee years. It was probably 86 or 87. And then in 1990, they uh, cycled back around to the Pertwee years. So at that point, I was a little bit older. I had a job. I had my own never-ending supply of uh, VCR tapes. I started this VHS collection, which I optimistically called The Best of Doctor Who. And I hadn't thought to tape Auton Invasion or Silurians, but I started with Ambassadors of Death, and I was able to fill that and Inferno, all 14 episodes, onto a single tape. That was my Best of Doctor Who Volume 1. I didn't keep every episode. I did not keep Mind of Evil for reasons that make no sense to me now, because it's amazing. I did not keep Claws of Axos, and I stand by that decision. But uh, Colony in Space I really enjoyed. So I've talked about how I first discovered uh, John Pertwee. Let's talk about this story then. This is a story that begins with the Time Lord sending the Doctor on a mission. Uh, if you've gotten deep enough into Doctor Who that you found this podcast, you'll of course know that this is the first time John Pertwee's Doctor was able to escape his exile on Earth and visit an alien planet. It is a story that is written by Malcolm Hulk, who is one of Doctor Who's most left-leaning scriptwriters, and the story certainly fits that. You have the rapacious corporation, IMC, uh, trying to claim jump uh, a bunch of almost socialist colonists who have uh, gone off to support their own farming lifestyle. Maybe socialist is not the best term. They're barely doing subsistence farming, and they live individually in domes. We don't learn too much about the colony's economics, but these are the good guys, and Hulk, having been a communist himself, he certainly puts a lot of himself into the, into the colonists. The novelization of this is amazing, Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon. And almost every chapter is an individual short story with a gut-punch ending. Uh, if you're watching along with me, we're seeing Captain Dent on screen right now. And he's introduced in the novelization in a chapter called The Man from IMC. It's an incredible short story, um, even though, of course, it's part of a, a larger narrative. And now we have John Pertwee's Doctor and Roger Delgado's Master. And Again, not everybody's going to share my opinions, but I honestly think it does not get much better than these two guys right here. Pertwee really hit the show at the right time. He was a bit of a James Bond figure at a time when James Bond was very much in the cultural zeitgeist. Not that he ever really went away. Uh, the show had transitioned from black and white to color, and... It was on less of the year. The Hartnell era was pretty much on year-round. With Pertwee now, it's only on six months out of the year, so it's a little more of event TV rather than something that's always on in the background. And Pertwee's Doctor was larger than life, and the actor put a lot of himself into the character. 
the show looked gorgeous. You had a lot more location filming as here, although this quarry might not be the most visually dynamic place that we've ever seen. And then, uh, starting in his second season, Roger Delgado joins the cast as the master. And the master is not in every episode of the, I think, 25, but he was in every story. And he shows up halfway through Colony in Space in a surprise twist. It's one of the more creative uses of Roger Delgado that season. Pertwee and Delgado, if you bottled that chemistry, you would have enough electricity to power the national grid for years and years and years. What we're looking at now is a pretty awesome fight scene between an actor and a stuntman in a clay pit, and they're both covered, covered in mud. And that's probably going to be Terry Walsh, who I think was in Doctor Who uh, more than anyone else, except possibly for Tom Baker over the years. He's got a very recognizable face and hairstyle. He was John Pertwee and Tom Baker's stunt double. Back in the 90s on records Doctor Who, whenever I used to list the names of the Doctors in order for the purpose of a post, I would always say the third Doctor was played by John Pertwee ampersand Terry Walsh. This is a good fight scene, and it's, um, you know, certainly for the story's 1971 vintage, this is a very impressive-looking bit of uh, television. It's now, the story's exactly 50 years old, but I think it holds up in terms of uh, the politics and the performances and the chemistry between the three regulars, John Pertwee, Katie Manning, and Roger Delgado. When I was watching uh, my pilgrimage in sequence, I love, I love the Hartnell years, the Trout years I found tough sledding, but when I got to the Hartnell, check that, when I got to the Pertwee years in March of 2021, I was just, uh, I just fell in love with the Pertwee era all over again. And I think uh, the eight years of Barry Letts, Terrence Dix, and then Hinchcliffe and Holmes is Doctor Who's principal golden age. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, any eight-year stretch of Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat in the new series would match it, but for my money, the, these eight years and this right here is Doctor Who's creative peak. Uh, what we're seeing on screen right now is a video insert of John Ringham. This is his third and final Doctor Who appearance. If you see John Ringham in a story, uh, his first one is The Aztecs, which was an early season one uh, Hartnell historical. He is intense as the story's antagonist. Not evil, not a villain, but he's the Aztec's high priest of sacrifice. And he's one of the few antagonists who actually is triumphant. He actually wins at the end of the story. That was the era of the show in 1963-64, where the TARDIS doesn't uh, so much win as just escape at a uh, logical point in the narrative right before everyone is killed. Ringham's next story was The Smugglers, which was uh, aired in season four, the first story filmed in the season four production block. He's got a smaller part playing a good guy, but he's not nearly as memorable in The Smugglers. Here he is just an absolute good guy. He is the saintly leader of the colonists, and in the Hulk novelization, he is expressly made out to be a Jesus figure. For somebody with communist beliefs, Hulk did a lot of Christian Bible symbolism in his novelization, certainly in Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, and then Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion. 
what's really fascinating about this bit of business, we're now coming up on minute 12, we're about halfway through the colony in space. You have Delgado's master has accessed the Time Lord files, and he's discovered they have information about the secret weapon on this planet, Exarius. And what he's doing here is he's not immediately trying to kill the Doctor. He is offering the Doctor a half share of the universe. This puts a new twist on their relationship. Terror of the Autons, his first story, tries to kill the Doctor several times. Mind of Evil tries to kill the Doctor. Claws of Axos, he and the Doctor form an uneasy alliance against a larger menace. But in this story, he seems to be offering the, the Doctor a share of his conquest. He doesn't hate the Doctor so much as want the Doctor desperately to join him. And the best of the Master stories in the new series, I think, play into that dynamic. It's much more interesting when the Doctor and the Master have a personal connection. We saw that with David Tennant and John Sim at the end of Series 3. We certainly saw that throughout Series 10, where Michelle Gomez was uh, pretty much in every episode and as much a cast regular as Roger Delgado was in classic series Season 8. These primitive costumes don't work particularly well. Uh, those uh, rubber masks just don't fit and don't go in with the image. I came across the novelization of this story via the American Pinnacle Books imprint, where the primitives pictured on the front cover don't look anything like they do in uh, the TV serial. And in my head canon, whenever I'm reading the book, which is often because it's that good, and we'll be talking about it very soon on a main episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, I'm always picturing the primitives as they appear on the cover of the novelization, uh, where they're said to have six figures, uh, rather than these rather clunky costumes. And there, at minute uh, 1330, is John Pertwee rubbing his chin. That's a great bit of body language. And there's Delgado with his eyebrows and his uh, satanic beard, offering the Doctor a half share of the universe. And Pertwee's saying that he'd rather explore the universe than conquer it. Uh, I mean, I'm talking over these two, but the chemistry between these two actors was amazing. They did eight serials together over three years. So again, this story is very lowly ranked among the Pertwee era in general and among all of Doctor Who. It's in the bottom, I guess you would say, the bottom 20%. But I have tremendous admiration for what this story is trying to do. And maybe the novelization plays into that. There's Tony Conter on screen. He's one of many actors who would appear in Doctor Who more than once. He had previously had a small part in The Crusade, a William Hartnell historical, and the next episode of Doctor Who Literature podcast after this one will be my breakdown of Doctor Who and the Crusaders, the David Whitaker novelization of that story from early 1966. Tony Conter would later show up in a small part in another one of my favorite stories, Enlightenment, the season 20 Peter Davison story, which is much more, much more highly ranked. It's one of the things that um, interested me as an American fan, uh, especially watching this show as a tween and then a teenager. I didn't watch a lot of British television. If it wasn't for the closing credits and the... Uh, Lafayette program guide, I wouldn't have known the actors' names. I didn't know if an actor was famous or not. 
when Nicholas Parsons shows up in Curse of Fenric or when Ken Dodd shows up in Delta and the Bannerman as a kid in the States. I would never have heard of those people. I didn't know they were famous. I didn't know they were stunt casting. That was just taking the actors on the way they performed in a particular story. And it always thrilled me when I recognized an actor in different stories. And eventually I became the kind of fan who had the program guide memorized. And I would be able to tell you, Toby Haydock style, which actor appeared in how many Doctor Who stories. This serial is a pretty good uh, entry in that game because you have John Ringham, who you'll have seen in some prominent roles, Tony Conter, who you'll have seen in some pretty small roles, and then, of course, other large portions of the guest cast weren't on Doctor Who uh, before or since, but you do get earlier in the story Roy Skelton, the longtime voice of many Doctor Who monsters, who here that gets a rare part playing a human um, spy for the IMC Corporation. Roger Delgado dies in his tragic automobile accident in Turkey in the summer of 1973. That's a few months before I was born. But even though his life and mine did not overlap, I have tremendous uh, admiration for his performance. With the exception of the Time Monster, where he's a little more comedic and over-the-top, he is fierce. What's fascinating is if you watch uh, Series 8 on the Blu-ray, in the Behind the Sofa segment, you'll see Sacha Dewan, who watched uh, Season 8 for the Blu-ray and recorded the Behind the Sofa for that season after he had filmed the Jodie Whittaker Series 12, but before those episodes aired. And he's watching Roger Delgado, and he's amazed at how still Delgado's performance is. And if memory serves me right, he expressed regret that he hadn't seen Delgado's performance before he started playing the role, because it certainly might have altered some of his choices. And Dewan is terrific, but he's much more in the Anthony Ainley, um, you know, very much uh, over-the-top mode of acting, whereas Delgado often underplayed it, and he was just stark raving sane. What's happening now is the Doctor has outlogicked the uh, Guardian to death. And this is, uh, 50 years on, this is a rather comical montage of visual effects. But in 1971, again, this would have been close to state-in-the-art for British television. And I imagine it would have looked much more impressive to a first-time viewer back then than it would today, where it just seems a little goofy with the camera shaking. One of the criticisms that I've seen of this story is that it's almost pro-colonial and anti-indigenous population, in that the primitives are impliedly killed off when the city explodes and the Doctor never really seems concerned about their fate. It's hard to imagine that that's the kind of story that Malcolm Hulk, of all people, would have wanted to tell. Maybe that was just uh, an inadvertent oversight or a directorial error. If uh, we had seen the primitives wandering around the planet after the city blows up, we'd have known that they escaped and would eventually go on to uh, perhaps rebuild their civilization or at least have a happier existence out of the caves. But as it is, the story gives the impression that they've all been uh, destroyed and nobody seems to care about their loss. Another actor in Episode 6 of Colony in Space, very familiar to Doctor Who viewers of the time, making his last appearance, is Bernard Kay. He appeared several times in Doctor Who's first few years. 
in the first production block, uh, he had a very major role in Dalek Invasion of Earth. And then he had a role again in uh, the Crusade. We'll be talking about that when I discuss the novelization in our next episode. Uh, Bernard Kay also shows up uh, working from memory here in season four in The Faceless Ones. I don't recall him having a role in season three. And this would have been his last appearance on the show ever and his only one in color. That's a terrific mustache, hopefully, the actor's own. I mean, if we're talking about the 1970s, you know, you can't talk about the 1970s without talking about mustaches. And Kay certainly has a good one. And so does the actor, um, I think, playing Winton, who has a pretty fierce mustache himself. Uh, we now have a pitched gun battle between the colonists and the IMC men, and the colonists are going to win, and Caldwell is going to stay behind. For a story that's ranked pretty low, Colony in Space does cast a pretty large shadow across the books. IMC turned up, uh, by reference, quite a bit in the New Adventures, which came out in the 1990s. And then the Eighth Doctor Adventures did a book in the late 1990s, I think the Janus Conjunction, which is almost scene for scene, uh, a retelling of Colony in Space with slightly different characters and a slightly different plot, but it's remarkably similar. And it makes sense. Um, the Doctor Who fans who grew up to write the books in the 1990s had grown up watching the Pertwee era on television. The Pertwee era is certainly a very large uh, influence on Russell T. Davies. His very first story with the new series, Rose, was in many ways a remake of Auton Invasion. And a lot of his stories followed the template of The Green Death, which is almost a soap opera story about a dysfunctional family with giant maggots thrown in as a uh, science fiction overlay. But it's very much a story about people rather than about the science fiction scenario. Colony in Space would influence the writers of the books. And when I tweet my way through the new series starting in a week or two, I'll keep an eye out and see if Colony in Space has a direct influence on any of the uh, new series adventures as well. We've gotten through more than 20 minutes talking about Colony in Space, Episode 6. We haven't talked much about Joe Grant as Katie Manning. Uh, Katie Manning is a veteran of many conventions. If you've gone to a Doctor Who convention, you've met Katie Manning, you've talked to her, she's probably hugged you. She is a force of nature, and everyone has a good Katie Manning story, and she is probably just one of the nicest people and the friendliest people and the most honest people you will ever meet, and she is a national treasure. Joe Grant was the companion for three full years. In terms of calendar length, she was probably the longest-running companion to date, although I haven't done a month-by-month -month count to see where she ranks up against Fraser Hines. Joe and her first story had a pretty rough go of it in Terror of the Autons. She was not, as a character, served very well in part one of that story. But she grows over her three years on the show. Here we are late in her first season. And the Doctor almost certainly cries in The Green Death when she leaves, which was not something we'd seen the Doctor do for companions before. Katie Manning and John Pert, we have about as good as chemistry as you could imagine, and it shows the way the Doctor and Joe interact once you get past the way he's horrible to her in Terror of the Autons, that is. So, uh, tremendously fond of Katie Manning, tremendously fond of Joe Grant, 
and the third doctor and Roger Delgado. And even though the story is lowly ranked, I think it's much better than that. And I've written why elsewhere. And it'll be coming up on the novelization soon for this podcast, so maybe I'll talk about it some more. But I'm really fond of this story, and I think it's a terrific success in many ways. And here's Nicholas Courtney, who has a very brief cameo at the end of the story. A colony in space was the first Pertwee story that he was not a major character in. He's only in, you know, one or two scenes at the beginning of episode one and the end of episode six. This is the beginning of Nicholas Courtley slowly being phased out of the series, although, of course, he continued to appear up through season 26. And then at the very end of his life, made an appearance in the Sarah Jane Adventures spinoff as well. Not a great Nicholas Courtney story is Colony in Space, but it's always a pleasure to see him. And that's an actor that I wish I had been able to meet at a convention, but it just wasn't to be. Now, is it just me, or does the diamond-shaped pattern of the Pertwee closing credits, at least at the very beginning of the run, doesn't it remind you a little bit of uh, Darth Vader's helmet? If you look at the shape of the uh, diamond around uh, some of the characters' names as the image morphs, it certainly looks right over Morris Perry's name. That's definitely the shape of Darth Vader's head. I also like the color scheme of the uh, closing credits here. This was Pertwee's first four seasons, seven through ten, featured these credits. Uh, visually not as uh, engaging or varied as what we'd see later on with uh, Colin Baker. But I love the Pertwee era so much that I get an adrenaline rush out of just hearing the music and watching the credits. Terrence Dix, you know, doesn't get much better than Terrence Dix, Barry Letts. These are all great names to see in the credits. And Michael Bryant, another tremendously visual director and one of the better directors Doctor Who had in the 1970s. So that will take us through the end of Colony in Space, and it's going to take us through the end of the special. Thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. And thank you for joining me for Doctor Who's anniversary. By the time this episode pushes, it will be November 24th, the day the day after the anniversary. But this was recorded on the 23rd, and this is my love letter to Doctor Who in this what is now the 58th year of the show and the 37th year of my fandom. Thank you for joining me on this bonus episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host, your editor, and your producer. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. You can also find me under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage, as well as the Trap One Podcast at Trap One underscore, where I am one of several co-hosts. Please drop me a line on Twitter with your comments, your questions, and your suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Crusaders, the 1966 David Whitaker novelization. Thank you for listening, and keep turning the pages. Thank you.